0: Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical Podcast. I have I think I have the best job in the world because I get to interview with Ben McDonald, my friend, colleague, interesting people, and so many of them I know, but I and I know some of Jeff Conway's story. And I'm telling you, you will not hear a story on the planet that's like Jeff Conway's. I'm telling you. So we will get into all of that. Buckle up. You're in for a good ride. So, Jeff, here's how we start. You and Paula, you're enjoying your date night on Saturday night. You're going to go play nine holes of golf before you enjoy dinner. And somebody sees you guys walking across the parking lot, going into the clubhouse. And they start talking about you. Hey, that's Jeff Conway. And they are Talking about you, not realizing that you can overhear and understand everything that they're saying about you. What would you want somebody to say about you?
1: I, I think I'd like them to say that Jeff makes our community a better place. Kind of well, short and simple, but, that's... um, you know, and I and that that would be. On a, you know, on a spiritual basis, but also. But also just, uh, you know, supporting the community philanthropically and politically, all those things. So
0: you do that and we we will get into some of those things that are your heartbeat and things that you are doing in the city. You don't trumpet yourself. You are a behind the scenes leader. You're a humble leader. And I'll just give this little tidbit before Ben goes into More of your story. So, Jeff Conway is originally from Oklahoma. I'm originally from Kansas. And when I was in a private equity firm, we bought a company based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was the largest SBA lender in the country or USDA, not SBA, USDA lender in the country at the time. And Jim Holder was one of those guys. And Jim Holder became a very good friend of mine. He was a partner. And he, he knew how much I loved Charlotte. And I was in Ohio at the time. And I wanted to come back to Charlotte. And he said, man, if you ever make it back to Charlotte, make sure you look up my good friend, Jeff Conway. So sure enough, when we moved back here in 2015, I'm driving on 77 South into Charlotte. I'm still a couple hours away. And I call him and I say, hey, Jeff, Jim Holder told me to call you. And it's during Wells Fargo Championship Week, which is a busy time for all of his restaurants. And he says, Gary, meet me at at the restaurant in South Park. I'm going to buy you a great meal, buy you a great glass of wine, and I'm going to tell you my story. (laughs) And that's how I met Jeff Conway. And boy, oh boy, it was one of the best meals I've ever had. And it was certainly one of the most engaging conversations I've ever had so you're in for a treat. All right, Ben, you're, you're get
2: the mic. <laughs> yeah, that that's what all the listeners now have uh, something to look forward to. So, before we jump in, Jeff's a restaurant owner and partner, including restaurants such as Nap on Providence, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, Pump House, Smoothie King, and to the heartbeat part of what Gary said earlier, he's also involved in the community through volunteering. Uh, one example of that's the member of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Opportunity Task Force, and that's focusing on the issue of social mobility. So, Jeff, before we really dive into where you are today and the things you're doing, um, I want you to take us way back to prior to being the CFO at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Paint a picture for us. Where were you early in your career? What were you doing? Things like that. And we'll just kind of dive into it first.
1: Okay. All right. Um, You know, when I I share my story, I, I Uh, Just for your audience, Uh, I think there's some very valuable spiritual lessons here. There's some some great business lessons, Uh, but also, you know, uh, it's a a bit of a love story. So my wife's a big part of the story. Uh, And to to kind of answer your question there, uh, Paula and I went to high school together. uh, Very first day of college, we went to Oklahoma State. She was my one and only pickup ever. Never been with another woman. That was it, uh, August of 1975. And um, and we both uh, were accounting majors, graduated in 1979. I went to work for Cooper's and Librand, uh, spent eight years there. Paula went to work for Deloitte, Askins and Sales. And, um, and, you know, that was great. I had a lot of uh, big public clients and i got uh exposed to that process of companies going public and and i i kind of uh thought that wow that'd be cool to be part of that someday not just as an Mm -hmm. auditor but as you know an owner or banker or something like that and uh never imagined as an account accounting major from stillwater you know oklahoma that that i would uh have that opportunity but I, i got a call the oil patch kind of imploded in the mid '80s. I got a call from uh, Ernst & Winnie at the time, and I decided after eight years in the Tulsa office of CNL to to leave and and move to Tampa, Florida, with Ernst and & Young. And there, and there at uh, Ernst & Young, I uh, was assigned more smaller clients. And one of my clients, ironically, was uh, owned by the a floor governor of the New York Stock Exchange and who who became vice chairman of the New York Stock Exchange and um he he thought I did a good job and he said Jeff if you ever find the right deal I would uh I'd invest with you so that's kind of how the whole thing got started
2: how do you how do you then go from that of working in like an Ernst and Young type situation to then becoming CFO at Ruth's Chris, for example. How do, well, you make, what, how do you make that leap?
1: Okay. So this takes a, a little bit of time, but um <laughs> so what what happened here was uh I showed uh, Mr. Fagenson was his name. I I showed him the rent-to-own industry and um and how it was starved for capital and how I thought if we could put a little capital together, uh that we could we could start buying up other rent to own companies. Um Mr. Fagenson also owned an investment bank star securities and um i didn't really understand it but he he came up with the idea of let's let's take this public and then and then uh use it as a a cheap currency to acquire other other rent-to-own companies so um geez it was about it was from 1990 through 2000 that we kind of executed this strategy um we bought a third of an essentially bankrupt rent company in Erie, Pennsylvania for $100,000. I, I took my last $10,000 and bought 75,000 shares at $0.13 cents a share. And um, I, I don't want to go into great detail unless you have more questions. But over the next 10 years, that company grew from 17 stores to 1,100, three times in the Fortune 100 fastest growing companies. I was CFO for the first eight years. Um, but these weren't franchises; these were we were just buying up other rent-to-own companies. Uh, it's not necessarily a nice business. It, it does have a place, um, but um, anyway, to to go through that kind of growth, think about that from seventeen to eleven hundred stores in roughly ten years, uh, where you're doubling every year. All the challenges you have from a merger and acquisition standpoint, from capitalization standpoint, from leadership standpoint, from merger integration—it was—it was a uh, quite a ride. And we eventually listed from a Nasdaq, you know, small cap market to we listed on the New York Stock Exchange.
2: So I want to go back to the start of that because the interesting part of your story there is how you you saw. It everything from the outside in, right? You were working on these, these public companies, you were working on companies going public, and now all of a sudden you're a part of a company going public. What were some of the things that that you learned being a part of it versus seeing it from the outside?
1: Um, well, it's much more personal (laughs) when (laughs) when it's, you know, your money and, and, uh, your reputation. Um, and and um in this case you know we were like a micro crap i mean the original offering was seven million dollars so i saw a a side of wall street that i hadn't working for at the time a you know big eight accounting firm um uh, but there's there's kind of this underbelly of, of wall street that gets small little offerings done and and uh, getting all the issues through the SEC was exhausting. Took about two years, you know, cleaning up the, the books of the entity. And uh, and and then what, uh, what really became challenging is, it, it may seem easy, but to go from a double from 17 to 34 stores, which is what we did with our first acquisition, that's brutal. And then to double again, and then to double again, and then double again. Uh, wow! I mean, that was—I th- I thought I had it hard in public accounting, but that was really difficult.
2: What were some of the most difficult parts of that?
1: Um, you know, most most when you're when in this world of finance, you, it, it, it's so hard to to raise the capital and close the offering, and get that done. But actually, everyone celebrates, but that's when the real work. Begins. I mean, putting the money together is hard enough, but but now you got to run this company. Mm-hmm. Now now you got uh, merger integration is really a tough tough topic. You know when when you're merging different cultures and making sure your systems can support the growth and and um, just everything from you know starts with a mission statement, but building on that, and creating culture. Just because you double in size doesn't mean you have any culture. So so those were and, and then the systems to support that growth. Uh, you know, you outgrow your accounting software, you outgrow your capital structure, you outgrow your people. So
2: it's it's funny. I'm we're literally going through that right now because three months ago we we acquired a Merrill Lynch team and an Edward Jones team. And so it's like three different teams coming together, three different cultures, three different processes all of it. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Of you've got to merge that in order for a company to be able to move forward. It's not just the growth or the revenue side. It's the culture and the relationships and the people.
1: Hey, you've got then you got to deliver. So getting the deal done was hard enough to merge those three entities you just talked about. Yep. Now you got to run it. That's hard.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. The uh so the work starts after the fact. Sorry, go Gary.
1: No. Um
0: I, I know where some of this Train is going to be going and I'm smiling because it's so good. It's terrifying, but it's so good. Um, But one thing that I wanted to ask you that I don't think I've ever asked you, Jeff, is, you know, the cultural integration, all of these parts that you've talked about are hard. Raising money, hard. Culture integration, hard. Systems integration, hard. Running the company profitably with all that stuff going on. There there isn't an easy path in this entire thing. For anybody that thinks that there is, uh, you haven't done it. (laughs) So (laughs) you just haven't done it. But I want to talk to you about the, I mean, man, doubling every year over 10 years is crazy. I mean, it's mind boggling to think about it. How did you, what were some of the things that worked and what were some of the things that didn't work when you were trying to mesh cultures with that kind of
1: growth? Well, um, in our in our case, um, you know, we had a we had a very uh, sophisticated board of directors. Um, the company that we acquired, you know, I'm not trying to pass judgment. It was a it was a 17 store rent to own chain. And so the existing chairman and CEO, uh, you know, never been part of something like that. And, and, um, uh, uh, there's a big train wreck at the end of this. It's coming. I'll do a little foreshadowing, but I think the company outgrew all of us. And um, uh, there's a, there's a whole nother side that I'm more than willing to, to discuss. And that's, you know, you've got a lot of stakeholders at the point you become this big public company, and and uh, we became Gateway. you Remember the name Gateway, we're a computer manufacturer. We became mm-hmm. their largest customer, but there's so many stakeholders. Uh, GE, we financed I think almost four thousand vehicles with GE. Um, so, so you got all these stakeholders on top of your shareholders, on top of your employees, but then then the the street that the street, you know, you've got all these analysts and uh, and uh, equity firms and wealth managers and and uh, trying to please everybody is uh, is also brutal and uh, I'm probably one of my weaknesses uh, and strengths is that I try to be a people pleaser so that was uh, really wasn't prepared to try and make everybody happy all the time
0: were there any things that you guys were doing i mean you're you're running around with your hair on fire every day i'm sure with with that i mean <clears throat> having a good boards important all that but were there any things that you or your leadership team were trying to do to instill hey this is the culture of the surviving entity this is the culture of us
1: we did a lot of work around best practices and merger integration, you know, put, getting a plan in place, executing it quickly, weeding out the people that weren't on board. Um, the, the, I'm dating myself a little bit. I'm a 65 year old guy at this point and And we're going back into the 90s. Right. But, yeah. you know, at that point, we did SAP implementations and things like that. It was very hard um and and so or i'm sorry not sap erp implementations yeah. um so we i mean we tried to do those things but there's you know speed bump a lot of speed bumps along the way and um and i also think there's this insidious side of being a public company and and the world comes at you you're not pretty quick you're in the world of private jets and um and investment conferences where your keynote speakers at the four seasons in, uh, you know, San Diego and, and, and uh, Philadelphia, and it gets, it starts going real fast. And you see the kind of the, the awful side of wall street where, uh, you know, greed really sets in and people start defining themselves through their wealth. Uh, It's, was an interesting ride. So I'll, I'll continue a little bit guys. Okay. So, um, cause I don't want to dwell and we only have so much time. And uh, so we got to the point where um, we did a, I think we got to 400 stores and then we did a 400 store acquisition uh, with a, a guy named Wayne Uzinga and George Johnson. Those are pretty famous names, right? And uh, they were also executing a roll-up strategy in the rent-owned industry. They used a pooling, without getting too detailed for you, they used pooling of interest for most of their accounting. So to merge our 400 store chain with their 400 store chain uh, was huge. And their 400 store chain was made up of a, you know 15 acquisitions or something like that. So no culture, tons of skeletons in the uh, closet, Um, it just, every day you'd wake up, you know, with different issues. And, um, at that point we, we had to do a a PeopleSoft implementation to handle just the sheer volume. And, uh, in hindsight, you know, and I've, I've done a lot of thought and writing that, that, that's the point where you need your board to step in and say, no, this isn't the right deal for us. And, um, you just, we're just not ready for it and and uh but there's incredible pressure to to support that high PE you're trading at right and so all, all the forces are around you is, let's let's take this stock to you know $100 a share <laughs> and keep in mind in, in rentway's case we started at 13 cents and it, it went to like $35 a share over 10 years that's 300 times uh the investment but but um that's that's I don't know if I answered your question there, but that's what happened.
0: Yeah. So, so you know what I'm hearing is, you know, with these acquisitions, and there are no such thing as mergers. You know, this there's an acquisition. Um, and especially with that many, you said something there really wasn't much of a culture when you've got that kind of stuff and lots of skeletons in the closet and that sort of thing. And and the culture piece is the one thing that I've seen destroy companies and every acquisition that looked good on paper, the, the, everything starts coming out right after the ink is signed or dried because of culture. That's been my experience. And I lived through the three largest bank acquisitions in history at that time. They were huge, 80,000 people to 160,000 in, employees in two years. Same, same thing. Um, and, and so, what I'm hearing is, is like, hey, because of the publicly traded company, and because of all of these things, you can do what you you can try to do from a culture standpoint, but it's it's running hard, and there's only so and so much you can do at that point. It seems like now you have a, a, as a private privately held business owner now and being on the private side you have you have affected the culture of your high-end restaurants and even your smoothie kings in in a much more personal way than you could have at rentway so i think that you did answer the question which is like management always sets the tone but it's it's difficult in that kind of thing so take us back to all right so this thing is going out of control you go from 400 to 800. Now you're, then you push up to 1100. Start, you know, unraveling what,
1: well, well, okay. So, so um, I was promoted to president, uh, I think at the end of my eighth year and, um, and, and, um, you know, when people pencil out the efficiencies in a, in a merger, right. In an acquisition and, uh, things get way over leveraged by the way, which is and that's a whole nother discussion for your your listeners. If anyone wants to talk to me, you gotta you've got to be very wary of investment bankers pushing a bunch of debt on you that that uh they get paid when the deal's done, but you gotta run the company with all that debt. In any in any case, um there was uh, an accounting year. I'd like to believe the accounting year was uh a function of our systems. But what happened was depreciation was grossly understated through a fraudulent accounting entry. The question became whether I knew about it. Uh, right before a, a board meeting, one of the staff accountants came to me. I, at that point, was pretty much running the board meetings and um, said, Jeff, we've got a $7 million inventory adjustment. And I said, well, keep. The board meeting's in ten minutes, so you know. Let's after that, I'll come over and talk about what, whatever problem we have. And um, and my life changed in the blink of an eye. Okay, um, after the board meeting, I went to the CEO's office and and uh, said, "Hey, got an accounting here." And um, in a lot of ways because I originally was instrumental in putting the deal together, introduced all the parties, arranged the financing. Um, People kind of looked to me for everything. Keep in mind at this point, we've gone from hundred employees to 5,000 employees, you know, 17 stores to 1100 stores. Uh, And we're now a New York stock exchange company. So uh, I went home that night and I was, Got a call in the morning, said, Don't come to work. And the scenario was well, maybe Jeff looked the other way. And so before I knew it, front page Wall Street Journal, front page USA Today, front page New York Times, uh, uh, Rentway has an accounting here. And uh, Jeff Conway uh, has been asked to step aside, quote, assist with the investigation. And, uh, you know, then all the big law firms come in, okay, and, uh, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers at that time was involved, and uh, the board gets convened, and, I mean, my life was turned upside down. And so they did a big investigation, internal investigation. I got uh, cleared, and um, but was asked to resign. Uh, so, uh, you know, that was hard, but... And and I'll just to add the numbers I I own seventy five thousand shares, but when you're a senior executive, you accumulate hundreds of thousands of stock options at all kinds of exercise prices. So on paper, I'd become a fairly wealthy person for a kid from Oklahoma State. I think all my stock equivalents were well over six hundred thousand shares. Um, so I uh, resigned and uh, started, I had, I had built a pretty good reputation, right? When you, And so uh, I reached out to Madison Dearborn Partners. I'd worked with them on a deal, and um, they said, Jeff, we've been waiting for your call. We don't like what happened. And um, they gave me a couple opportunities to interview with, and one was Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. So Ruth Chris at that time, Madison Dearborn had just bought out Miss Ruth, and they um, they needed a CFO. So I went in as the CFO, and um, my job was to position that company to go public. I'll, I'll pause for a minute. Do you guys have? Any, I hit you with a lot there. Do you have any? Questions?
2: Yeah, we're we're not allowed to just skip over all that and move on <laughs> to Ruth Chris. Yet. Right. <laughs> yeah, so. So let's go into your mindset a little bit, because like you said, your life changed instantly. Um, you go home and don't know exactly what's going on or what's going to happen. W- what does that look like? What are the conversations uh, in that household of, of you trying to figure things out for yourself and for your family?
1: And that's such a, a great perspective at, at this point. Um again, Paula and I got married in 75. We're now in, uh, geez, we were uh, like in the late 90s, right? 99 or 2000. And so so, um, Paula was incredibly supportive. She knew the kind of pressure that was out there for our company to make earnings expectations. And some of the challenges that I had with my (laughs) leadership, there was a CEO and a chairman that I was dealing with. Um, So number one, having a supportive wife was incredibly helpful. All right. Um, I I just remember they're laying in bed, you know, not being able to sleep because I'm a, as a, as a 10 year big eight CPA, I kind of know when there's accounting error, how serious that is. And then almost 10 years, you know, with this with this public company at this point, a a fairly sophisticated executive. And uh, so you can't sleep. You don't want to eat. You're like, oh, my gosh. I mean, this is very, very, very serious. Uh, So I think I lost like 10 pounds in a week. And um, I had I had an employment agreement and, and a very supportive board you know, and, and, uh, like I say, the investigation cleared, cleared me of any wrongdoing, um, being asked to resign hurt, but I'm, I'm the kind of person that can compartmentalize things and just, okay, I got to move forward. And, um, but terror comes to mind, terror and anxiety, you know, and, uh, I have a favorite. I'm going to quote a little scripture to you here that's it's um, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to the Lord and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts in mind in Christ Jesus. I might've messed that up a little bit at the end, but I mean, that's my advice. When, when a true moment like this hits someone and it could be a divorce could be a death of a child could be bankrupt whatever it is uh that's when you got to fall back on your faith because i mean there's people who put a bullet in their head when something like this happens right um so i hit you with a lot there go ahead and ask some questions yeah
0: so Keep going with the story because I know (laughs) I fortunately I've gotten to hear this story a number of times and I learn something every time, but keep rolling. So, okay. You're you're dealing with night terrors. I know what that feels like. I've been through that too. It's awful. And, and you do have some grounding, but you've got, it seems like there's a path going, but then there's other stuff happening.
1: Yeah. And I, I, and I like to dwell uh, not so much on, on what happened here, but, let's look at the way forward. So uh, Madison Dearborn partners, like I said, had just uh, acquired Ruth Chris. Uh, they needed a CFO. They they brought me in. Um, that was an interesting situation. I had to move to New Orleans and, uh, and you know, again, a private company, but very unsophisticated. I, I remember they were using, you know, modem lines to transfer their data at this point, which, Imagine the viruses you get when you've got. I think we had 40 stores at the time trying to capture 25 company owned stores, if that's right. So, uh, you know, I threw myself into that. Okay. And um, it, after everything I'd been through, kind of building systems at Ruth's Chris, and after a couple of years, I got promoted to president and it was interim president. In the midst of that happening, I get a call from my attorneys, I was represented by Jones Day, not trying to name drop here, but that's one of the largest law firms in the country. And they said, Jeff, the uh, US Department of Justice and Securities Exchange Commission uh, uh, it will be investigating the situation. And um, you're a target of the investigation. And uh, some members of the board uh, called me and the advice was just don't say anything, you know, let your att- attorneys represent you. So so now that starts showing up in the newspapers in a, a pretty big way. Right. And um, um, that's personally having a wife there to support me. I was blessed to have a very good job at, at Ruth's Chris uh, to keep me focused on that. Uh, But but that's when from a faith perspective, this was way bigger than me. And and I can remember getting down on my knees in closet and going for walks and uh, a lot of prayer about, you know, God, what's happening to me? Well, how how is this going to end? And um, so that investigation uh, took place over about three years, maybe a little more. And there were ups and downs during that. Um, But I'll always remember the day my uh, attorney called me. And I'm I'm talking the very top of Jones Day. These are the kind of guys that were billing $600 an hour in 2000. All right. And they said, Jeff, um, prosecutor named Mary Beth Buchanan, who's trying to make a name for herself, um, thinks you look the other way. And this wasn't an assistant US attorney, this was a US attorney and a a highly political US attorney. And so um, uh, they think you're a really good guy, Jeff, but they think you got off the reservation and looked the other way. And they want to make an example that it's not okay for executives to look the other way. So um, I said, either you plead to conspiracy to commit a books and records violation Or if if you decide to go to trial and you get convicted of even one kind of fraud, you could do up to 25 years without parole.
2: Quite the, quite the decision that they're giving you or quite the options.
1: Yeah. And um, uh, these, you know, Hey, the U S department of justice plays hardball. All right. Just being honest. And, and they, they got all the the power. So that really was an easy decision for me because my my first concern was, um, I don't want to appear knowable, but was for my wife and my family. And so um, I said, okay, we'll take, uh, you know, Paula and I talked, pulled the kids in, said we're going to take the plea deal, don't know what's going to happen. Then I had to go and um, uh, you have to, you know, plead guilty. And so it's, it was, I remember flying from New Orleans up to uh, erie this case was in the western district of pennsylvania had to go before a uh, federal judge that's a very humbling experience and they ask you 10 different ways if you're under pressure to plead guilty and you have to say nope i'm i i'm guilty here's what i did and um did that then i flew back and i kept running Riz chris i remember the uh <laughs> very, very good man from Madison Dearborn, Robin Salati, um, stood by me and and uh, said, because I didn't know what my sentence was going to be. So a couple of months went by, then I had to go back to Erie, Pennsylvania for sentencing. And um, it wasn't O.J. Simpson big, but it was pretty big. All right. I mean, I remember walking into the court with this entourage of friends around me and Paula and Madison Dearborn came and many friends and colleagues flew in, came to support me. And um, you know, you present character references, and I had some very stellar references, but the uh the judge gave me a sentence of 13 months in prison. And uh and like there was this hush that fell over the courtroom. I uh I was there were so many journalists there and stuff. I remember getting ushered out the side of the courtroom door. I remember my wife kind of in this stare down with Mary Beth Buchanan, who we can talk about later. And and um, zipping off to Pittsburgh, went to Roots, had a steak dinner at Pittsburgh, caught a flight home the next day to New Orleans, and um, was awaiting being, being told when to report to federal prison. And then um, that process took about 60 days, and uh, I got a call, and they said, you've been assigned to Eglin Federal Prison Camp, which is a big Air Force base in Destin, Florida, and uh, you have two days to report. So that was December 30th. At least I got Christmas with my family. I think I had a nice cowboy ribeye before I went and uh, showed up. But Paula and some very good uh, Christian friends drove me to prison. I had many good Christian brothers lay hands on me. Um, but, I mean, I didn't, guys, I didn't know what a baby's mama was. I didn't know what grills were. I didn't know what 22s were. I knew no one in my entire life that had ever been to federal prison. And so um, really didn't know what to expect. Okay, I, I talked a the lot there. I don't mean to dominate this, but I what do you think?
0: Well, this is this is your story, man. You should be talking. Okay. No, so a, a couple things too. One, so you're hit with a felony. So you can't own certain things, right? Because you're a felon at that time. You can't be an secondly, officer or
1: director of a public company.
0: Yeah. And so secondly, um, when they put the gun to your head and said you either plea out or if one of these counts hits, you got 25 years with no parole. The chances are of finding anything when you you've got that kind of astronomical growth, especially with that Wayne Huizenga acquisition of 400 stores, there's probably some skeletons that, they can trip a tripwire, you know, just like Al Capone goes to prison for tax fraud, even though he killed tons of people. It was tax fraud that nailed him. So I think that, you know, for anybody listening, that's kind of the the reality of that. I think that you were facing. You know, it's like I, I,
1: re- I remember my attorneys telling me, Jeff, they they say they have an email. There's there's a lot of bantering that goes back and forth between the Justice Department attorneys and you know a firm like jones day and essentially i felt that was a, a poker chip in a very high stakes game i had dno insurance which made me a very good client to have right i i know they built at least a million dollars and um and and i also know the justice department likes to make examples you know to to deter white collar crime and uh how in the world i ended up in the middle of this and i mean sure i you know made mistakes but um the good news was i did not have any restitution um and uh you know that that 13 months turned into 306 days um i got a when i reported to prison i got a bonus going to prison a pretty substantial one uh uh, Ruth's Chris did not like the way things came down, so they uh, they gave my wife and I a very very soft landing. So you know, Paula had uh, plenty of money. My most all the stock I owned, I one thing he had dead run I sold very 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 few shares. I sold about three thousand shares of the six hundred thousand I owned, and and that was uh, only to pay an Altman tax bill mm-hmm. that I had, but um so okay so i have to go to prison right my wife drops me off and um it was in the newspapers that i I was headed there steve madden the shoe guy you know he he had just gotten kicked out of there for running his businesses out of the out of the camp i show up at an air force base and uh we could do a whole segment on prison, okay? But but uh it was probably fifty percent Hispanic, twenty five percent or thirty percent African American. Call it twenty percent Caucasian, maybe ten percent white collar. Most of the people in prison, because of the when Len Bias overdosed. Ben, are you old enough to remember who Len Bias is? I know Gary
2: knows. I but, mean, yes and no, like. Yes, no, but I'm not old enough to have been around and old enough then at the time. Okay, so
1: Len Bias was the number one pick in the NBA. You know, the night that he was picked, he uh, overdosed on crack cocaine and died.
2: Yep. Yeah, I know the the story, but was certainly not old enough.
1: Well, the the result is they passed incredibly harsh, it was bipartisan uh, drug sentencing laws. And so at, at that point, the prisons were loaded with crack dealers and they were they were serving ridiculous sentences. You know, t- twenty two years was not an unusual sentence. So I ran into a lot of those guys who, through good behavior, had worked for the last seven years of their sentence to a prison camp. The prison system has highs, low highs, mediums, lows, and and camps. There is such a thing as a supermax, but I, I got to go to a camp. And uh, I was on a work crew. I was on Pappy's Ditch Bitches, weed whacking with Jitterbug, Fat Silk, Snake and Me. Um, I think I got paid 11 cents an hour, laid a lot aside, and a boss man named Stacy Jones. He looked like Lawrence Taylor with one eye. He had a bad eye and wore a patch. But but, uh, (laughs) anyway you know, you, you, um, it was very humbling. I, I was on the top bunk. I had a cubicle. I wasn't in a cell. It was in a cubicle with seven feet by seven with another man. That's 49 square feet, two guys, you know, basically you get two pairs of pants, maybe three shirts, a few pairs of underwear, some really bad shoes. If you have any friends that are going to prisons, send them some money. Cause you gotta, you gotta buy a decent pair of shoes. A couple of them, really. And, um, uh, but it was interesting. I had so much unconditional support. My wife came and saw me. Paula came every two weeks, uh, actually drew us close together. I called her once a night. You get 300 minutes a night of phone time, 300 minutes a month of phone time. So uh, every night at nine o'clock, called her. We grew incredibly close. The kids came um, every once a month. So every four weeks she brought the kids. And, uh, again, because of the bonus I had received, Paula had plenty of money and, and lots of, uh, friends and support. So that we were blessed. Our, our experience was not as harsh as it could have been, uh, met a lot of interesting people. You can't judge a person by their color and uh, how they grew up. Uh, but in prison, everything's kind of equal. So, so, um, I had some great guys that I trained with, uh, and, and, uh, met, met a lot of guys that looked just like you two, you know, that were through crazy circumstances, ended up in the same situation. Um, and about my sixth month, a, uh, hurricane hit not Katrina, but hurricane Ivan, which was a major hurricane. And, uh, it was a direct hit of the air force base they packed us up a thousand people from our institution but five thousand people from other institutions in the area and sent us all to uh yes Yaz, was yazoo city in oh, mississippi. Yeah, mississippi and uh that, and where, where do you put five thousand people where they show up show up at the door it was a fairly new facility so they i mean they just When I say packed in these prison buses with the mesh like sardines, I'm not exaggerating. And then you get out and there were some mattresses laying on the ground and they just, you had to grab a mattress and they threw you in a cell. Um, I got put in a cell with a pretty good guy and they slammed the door shut. They fed us peanut butter and orange juice for three days. The fourth day they let us go out into the yard, and that's kind of was the first time I saw, I don't want to call it gang members, but when you when five thousand people go out in the yard, kind of all the all the people they've known from the gang start seeing each other. Um again, I had I saw you know, bad fights. I saw terrible, I think I saw a guy get killed once. Um, um, but I I don't know, I had a hedge of protection around me. Um, after six days, they picked 200 men who they felt were low flight risks to go back to Eglin Air Force Base and clean up the damage from the hurricane. Um, that, I don't want to belabor this, but I, I they didn't have enough room for me on the main bus. So I got stuck in a minivan with 14 people and uh, the fan belt broke in Mississippi and we're stuck in a truck stop prison guard decides to give us some salt, and vinegar, potato chips, no water, keep the windows closed. You know, and I'm, I'm like, we could die. It's, you know, what an asshole. Right. And, uh, um, survive that, get back to the res to Eglin. And I, I go to get a mattress cause the base, our section was really destroyed. It was a bad hit. And, um, I remember picking up my mattresses and I'm not kidding. A thousand cockroaches came out from under it and uh, threw it up on my bunk. And then do uh, you guys know who I Akon is? Yeah. He's a rapper. Yep. You know, uh You ever hear of a song locked up? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's that was a popular song in 2004. And I'm on a crew. There were four of us. With Pappy and Stacy Jones once again watching us with little dinky che- chainsaws cutting up large oaks, throwing them in gigantic shredders. And it's not like you had eye protection and hand protection. A military shredder is as big as a house. I mean, br- brutal labor, brutal labor. <laughs> so, uh, and I'll always remember. You know, some guys don't work very hard. I I, I got a bonus. I got ten dollars for working hard. But um, <laughs> I'll always remember this pappy guy screaming at someone, "You bucking boy!" And you don't want to buck because they'll they'll send you to a more secure institution, right? So think of the movie Cool Hand Luke. Um, I I survived all that. Um, and I'm, I'm going quick, guys, because I could tell you all kinds of stories. But uh, while I was locked up, the board of Ruth's Chris met and they they uh, decided to give my wife the franchise rights to Ruth's Chris in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so uh, some other franchisees and Ruth Chris, good, good men, reached out to Paula, flew up to Charlotte, helped her identify some locations. So in my mind, I'm like, wow, I you know. I guess I'm going to be a Ruth's Chris franchisee. Um, I didn't. I didn't really know what was going to happen, but while I was locked up, the board decided to go ahead with the offering at Ruth's Chris. And as a convicted felon, I I was not able to go back as an officer of the company. But they they certainly did a you know very very nice thing for Paula and me, and uh, so that we had to reinvent ourselves as uh, restaurateurs. I hit you with a lot there so I'm sure I missed some things but I told y'all buckle up
0: (laughs) there's there's more to come so there's so much more even you know from that because if I remember right when you got out of prison you went back and you were scrubbing potatoes with Ruth Chris
1: correct Yeah, I went. I went back again. Now God's working on me at this time. Okay, so we talked about business lessons. I I got the, I got the best wife in the world. All right, and and great kids. And you know, when your kids and your parents have to visit you in prison, and it's pretty humbling. Okay, Um, it'll bring you to it'll break the best strongest man down. Um, All right. So so then Ruth says, yeah, we you're going to be a franchisee. We'd like you to come back as a prep cook. So here I was the interim president. Now I'm a prep cook and I'm in a halfway house out on a lesion fields, which I'm talking ninth ward of new Orleans, not really a rough place, you know? And, and uh, so I show up at the halfway house, it's in the papers that I'm coming to the halfway house and, and uh, you know, Paula picked me up at prison and I'm not going to, you get, they time you, you get four hours to get home. All right. So, so, um, she, she drives me to, um, uh, the halfway house. And I, I remember walking in the guy goes, what are you doing here? We we owned a Mercedes. So they just pulling up and I go, listen, I don't want any special treatment. Just, I got to get my two weeks in and out. Uh, and he goes, Okay, it was a priest. It was a priest who ran the halfway, and he goes, two rules, no smoking, and uh, no cell phones. Well, I said, fine. And it's it's like walking in a saloon where, um, and, and I remember walking in, open the doors, and there's smokes, you know, four feet down from the ceiling, and everyone has a cell phone. And the rap music is beyond loud. <laughs> and, um I'm like, this this is crazy, you know, and and so and then guys are walking around when you check into a hotel. There's that little cart you hang your luggage on. They've been shoplifting all day and there's just all kinds of carts with shoplifters (laughs) willing to sell you some clothes, you know, and. and I thought, okay, got to get through this. So, um, Chris, you know, I just had to walk. It was like two miles to the original roose crests and broad street there through, through the hood. I'm talking, you know, pit bulls on chains and underneath bridges in the rain, show up soaking wet. And, and then, then I'm like peeling shrimp with little mama and Chiquita. <laughs> and I used to be the president guys like you are coming in making fun of me <laughs> in, a, in a good night, good natured way. It was all in fun, but. Like, damn, God, what, I mean, what are you doing to me here? You know, and um, uh I survive all that. I could tell you an awful story. I mean, there was no toilet paper in the halfway house. Okay. I mean, just basic necessities. So oh, thank goodness, man. you know, I, I got out, Ruth stood by me and I learned a lot about the workings of a, of a restaurant. And uh, then I had to put the capital together to open my first restaurant. I had about a million dollars left. Okay. My, most of the stock had become uh, relatively worthless. I mean, Rentley eventually settled for, I went 10 bucks a share, but I had dumped all my stock and had about a million dollars, but that wasn't enough to build a roost Chris. So two very uh, good men, David Halpern and and Gary Solomon kind of icons of the New Orleans community. think, uh, Knew me from Ruth's. Chris David. David was Ruth's general counsel for a long time. Thought I got a bad deal. Gary was his good friend. He introduced me, and and we cut basically a deal where Paula and I put up six hundred thousand, and they each put up three hundred thousand, and then and then we borrowed the money for our growth. They're great guys, but they believed in a lot of leverage. We ended up borrowing with a one point two million in equity. We borrowed about sixteen million dollars. So wow. we opened the uh, first restaurant in 2005 and Paula and I moved up here to Charlotte at a great home, the kids settled and um, that restaurant did really, really well. And, and then um, we had a chance to buy a parking lot at third and try on uptown and, and put the second Ruth's Chris there. Um, had had a great real estate broker um, with Southern real estate uh, that kind of new deals that were not even on the market. So both both locations we we picked off attractively and we uh we built ground up that location uptown. Well, that that location opened in March of 2000. Gary, you can relate to this what what happened in October of 2008. I Oh, well, there was this little thing called the Great Recession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I had just on that project alone, we we bought the land and built the building ground up, which I will not a, I don't know how we got it done, but we did it. And and uh but we had about seven million in debt. And and we entered into a contract to do the same thing in Savannah, Georgia. In this case, we bought uh the basement and first floor of a mid-rise tower. Uh, so anyway, I found myself $15 million in debt and, and the world imploding and executives like you weren't exactly going to Ruth's Chris to have a porterhouse and bottle of silver oak, right? I think they, so our sales plummeted from um, uptown from, geez, I think we were over 6 million a year in sales to 3 million. It mm-hmm. was it was awful. And so all the pressure of <laughs> way and prison and public accounting, but but when it's your name on the hook for um, that kind of, and it was my, it was all my wife's name. I was a convicted felon, so I couldn't have a liquor license. So uh, I'm like, Paula, that's <laughs> that's on you, baby." Um, but <laughs> I I don't know. By the grace of God, if you remember, interest rates collapsed, beef prices totally collapsed. I, Tenderloins got down to 7 or $8 a pound. And this is kind of the faith part, but there was always enough money to make payroll. And I, and I by this time, we had uh, also opened in 2009. We couldn't get out of it. Uh, the roots in Savannah, Georgia, it's right on the river. Great location. And um, so that was a hundred percent financed as well. They, my, my buddies are great partners, but, that's that was a little bit too much debt to have, right? Um and never missed a bank payment. Uh New Dominion was our bank. They're no longer around. I got a kick. Yeah. The one person that paid New Dominion Bank was Jeff and Paul Conway. But um uh great friend Dave Willingham banked me back then. You guys may know Dave, the community. Uh okay, so so um then that was a struggle and and we had also entered into a transaction up in asheville to build a roots chris similar transaction where we we bought the land and built the building had some very very fine partners up there which i'll talk about here in a minute but paula said jeff this this steakhouse business stinks we got to diversify uh because i you know charlotte didn't recover gary you might remember yeah, even though a lot of people said, "Oh, 2010, everything was better," it wasn't in Charlotte. You know, a lot of other communities it was, but it was not better in Charlotte. So we had a chance on a land lease to uh, purchase the uh, the Providence Cafe, um, also known as the Cougar Cafe or the Divorcee Cafe. I <laughs> I didn't know all that history, but that was its <laughs> reputation. Uh, kind of a great, but a great location in in uh, Myers Park, Eastover neighborhoods. And so, so we came up with this other concept and, um, uh, got off to a slow start, but then it started clicking and doing really well. And the economy gradually picked up and we were able to, um, uh, you know, refinance and, and, uh, life, life started, you know, going along pretty good. And then, um, Uh, Another guy entered my life, uh, Elliot Close, he was a regular at Ruth's Chris in South Park, Um, very famous family for the, you know, those don't know who they are, but they were part owners of the Panthers and, and he asked, um, asked me if I'd be interested in being his partner in the pump house. And, um, you know, very, very, very generous person and he gave us a carried interest in that project and it, it became successful. And then we had a a chance to um, open another Napa restaurant. Paula and I kind of view Napa as our brand, but we opened Napa in Kingsley and Fort Mill. And uh, our partners in that project are are Elliot Close and Colby Mosier. Colby's another very dear friend, uh, 29 years in the FBI, um, done well financially. And so those were kind of the the group that has the pump house. and Napa Kingsley. And then, and then they asked us to um, be part of the drift restaurant out in, up in Belmont. So, so uh, our restaurants kept opening. Well, um, about, this is the, another very interesting part. You know, I had, I'd had kind of thrown my life into supporting the Charlotte community and uh, a lot of, a lot of ministries in the restaurant, some Bible studies there that we host, and again, I never, I was. I, I became very disciplined uh, about praying daily and learning to put my faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as you had all these speed bumps, I was kind of realized it'll be okay, all right? It'll be okay. Um, so I get a call from my partners in Asheville. And his name's John Bell. And uh it was about a month or so before the Biden inauguration. And he, he said, Jeff, um, I have an opportunity uh maybe to help you get a pardon. And I said, I, I don't, you know, <laughs> I've had enough drama in my life. I I don't I don't think that's a very good idea, John. And mm-hmm. um, and I had been on this opportunity task force, which is a big deal and in Charlotte and some it was more of a democrat sponsored initiative and people from there said they thought they'd help me so i had taken the time i had a very good executive assistant and filled out the paperwork for a a pardon and it's when you do that you have to really bare your soul and i i did as best as i could to answer all your questions filed it nothing happened so i gave up well i get this call from john bell hey i think i could help you i said well it's it's only a, a month away are you sure and Here's what I I think happened. I think John called a, I'm not going to reveal the name but a very senior person in the Trump administration told him about me and uh I I updated my character references um and I emailed it to John and that was on January 5th of 20 20- Right. Well, what happened on January 6th? Right. That was yeah. uh, so. So when John emailed it to this uh, high ranking official, it never got there. I was fine. I said, don't don't sweat it. My life's great. My kids are in college. My wife loves me. The businesses are doing fine. Um, no big deal. Well. Uh, two weeks later, um so what the inauguration isn't it around January twentieth or so something yeah. about every year. That's right. It's always I think the inauguration's on Wednesday morning. I had gone to a wine dinner Tuesday night. Uh, was a little lit up when I got home. I got down on my knees and said a prayer and said, God, if, if you know, if this can be used for Your glory, then fine. Um. And then I went to bed. It was late, probably one o'clock. I woke up at three. I, it's hard to describe, but I just felt uh, this feeling of assurance. And um, I said, that's weird. It, you know, it's probably the Holy Spirit. Okay. And I went back to bed. And at that point, we were in COVID. So, the, so um, I taught the Bible study, uh, facilitated it. In the morning, it started at seven o'clock. So I get up at 6 30, check my email, nothing there. Okay, fine. I wasn't expecting it. Literally, minutes or seconds before the Bible study started, I checked my text messages. For those of you who know me, I'm not great at texting, but I, and it said, Congrats. It just said, Congrats on it. And it was from Gary Solomon's son. I mean, I've, I barely know this guy. And uh, so I yelled downstairs to Paula. My office is upstairs. I said, hey, Paula, check check my name. See if something happened. And sure enough, I was on the White House register. I received a presidential pardon from uh, Donald Trump. Wow. So uh, <laughs> he'll, hold on a minute. I'll, I'll show it to your... <laughs> I don't know if this... Oh yeah. There it there is. It is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um that that was really uh interesting and, and I remember feeling like really good. When you get pardoned, that's a good feeling. It's like I mean I, I was carrying carrying that burden, but mm-hmm. I just felt good. And uh you know what when I share my testimony, I just I just tell people. If that is one, hun- I mean, we're already pardoned, right, guys? We're already pardoned uh, by grace through faith, and we just have to accept it. But um, so I use that uh, illustration that it was, it felt really good, and I try and encourage people to, um, you know, bring Christ into their lives. So, so one uh, thing- I, okay, oh. I hit you with a lot there, and, and then oh. and then. Um, we had an opportunity to sell our roots, crests in October. So we sold our four roots, Crests and, uh, we did very well in that transaction. And, and, um, it's, it's been a nice, happy ending. Uh, Paula and I, our Napa concepts, we think we have something that's got a little magic to it. So we're in the process of opening a few more locations. Um, like I said, we're both 65 and, um, you know, we've been through a lot. Kids turned out great. Um, so when I look back on the, on the last, call it 45 years, what a ride. Um, I, I just think all of us, I mean, have these challenges in life, right? So I don't want to act like mine were any worse or any more extreme, but I, I know, um, I've got, you know, plenty of life lessons, business lessons, and spiritual lessons to share. So, Go ahead, Gary and Ben. Any any questions you have, I'd be more than happy. Yeah,
0: so I know we're running a little long, but um, this has been extremely rich. I mean, anybody going through tough times out there, whether you're running a business or not, um, we 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 learn gratitude in the midst of difficulty. I think, um, you know, I I certainly did, but one thing that you've done that you didn't mention that i think is really powerful and that is using the experience of prison and some of the horrific and i mean horrific food that was served to you with expirations that were years years past due and you were still fed this junk and I've got other friends. I've got a friend that spent seven years in a supermax. I mean, for day trading crime. Yeah. I'm never supposed to been in a supermax. But nonetheless, what his, his stories will curl your, your hair. But same stories as far as like the food kind of thing. But what you've done is you've taken Ruth's Chris multi-course meals back into the prisons because of that pain of what you experienced.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I I I, I uh, have a immense Bible study, and I think uh, for about eight years, COVID killed it. But we would go to Kershaw, which is a state institution in South Carolina. It's a medium, so that's the kind of place where people are serving time, you know, serving life for murder, uh, and um, worked out a deal with the warden where we would serve a uh, hundred men. They they got to pick the men. I you know preferred Christians, but it worked out where it was a, a kind of a broad selection of men and um and twenty guards prison guards aren't my favorite but whatever so, <laughs> so i yeah. uh, hey you, know, you got to do what you got to do and we would it was fantastic guys we would um uh take i mean we'd start with shrimp cocktail and crab cakes and and uh you know st- steakhouse salad with mashed potatoes, cream spinach, and uh, the the guys that they had marching teams. The guys that won the marching drill, they would get New York strips. Everyone else would get fillets, and uh, then then we would have a, a worship service afterwards. And uh, it was so powerful. I, I really think we got a lot more out of it. We the employees and the Bible study members that participated than we got giving. But uh, the joy in that room, because those guys are eating bad food and to have, uh, you know, and, and we pretended the wine. I got little pretend wine glasses and we had cranberry juice and uh, grape juice and white grape juice. And and those that was just like Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Cabernet. And we'd have our little towels over our hands. And and then uh, we finished up with sin cake, kind of symbolic that we're all sinners but um <laughs> it was great it was great uh, it was a nice run and i in fact we'll be doing more of those but uh, covid did not help that ministry
2: so jeff obviously there's even so much more to your story but i i appreciate everything you've shared i know it's going to be entertaining and useful for all the people that that listen to this so thank you so much for coming on any any final thoughts anything else you want to to leave the listeners with
1: um you know, I think I think um, these spiritual disciplines are are very important. You know, and I'm I'm talking about daily prayer and worship and communion, things like that. I mean, they really help balance you. I think I think all of us as leaders, whether we're household leaders or business leaders, um, we need to pray for discernment so that we make good choices. Um, in hindsight, when I look. And I wrote this in my pardon application. Um, you know, I, I was a seasoned executive. I was a, about a 40-year-old guy. Actually, that's pretty young, honestly. But yeah. um, we need our boards of directors to really provide guidance and oversight to the executive teams. And um, uh, no, I'm not, you know, it happened I, I should have been able to stop it and slow down a lot of things that went away, but I didn't. And, um, so, so, uh, that's one lesson. And then the last thing I want to say is marrying well is another really good thing. Cause in life you're going to have, it, it's no bowl of cherries all the time. Right. So having a, a partner or spouse, um, that you can count on in the toughest of times, uh, Incredible. So my wife deserves a lot of credit for getting me through all this.